If you will, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. By the way, happy Mother's Day um, to, to the moms. Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37. And uh, I'm going to just open us in a word of prayer, if I might. Father, um, it's so easy to talk about you in normal language. It's so easy to, to take things lightly that, that we ought not take lightly. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that you are a consuming fire, that you're awe-inspiring, that your gravitas should make everything in our life bend your way. Yet we, we kind of remake you into our own image and in doing so we make you small. We do an injustice to who you are, to the truth of who you are. And we lose sight of, of the center point, the anchor of our life and we confess that. I ask this morning that somehow you would awaken us to your love, awaken us to your, your heart for us, your desire for us, your children, and that we would find the, the right way to respond appropriately, to be able to worship you. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. It, there's an interesting thing that I've begun to notice in Christianity, and, uh, and it's and to understand that I think you'd have to understand what, what the prosperity gospel is. Um, so I just kind of want to frame what that is so that I can kind of show you how this other thing appears to me. But the prosperity gospel is, is this movement that has happened in the church in America in different places where certain verses of blessing um, are in, in some sense made the be-all, end-all of the message of Scripture and uh, preachers will communicate to large groups of people that if you just have more faith, you'll be more blessed. If you just have more faith, you'll, you'll be richer. If you just have more faith, God will give you the BMW. God will give you the, the jet plane. And then usually those, those kind of televangelist type teachers will say, look at all the millions God has given me in my faith. And I say, no, look at all the little old ladies watching TV that sent in their $10 um, because you're being manipulative, you know. But it's, it's a real perversion in some sense, this whole kind of let me model for you that it really is all about me and I've found a way to manipulate God to make it all about me and I'm inviting you into this gospel, this good news of prosperity. And, and I think it's a perversion of scripture. It's, it's heresy. Let's just call it what it is. It's sinister, I think, in a lot of ways. And it... It takes your pain or people's pain and, and does a real injustice to it. Instead of, instead of meeting people in their pain, it just says, um, I'm going to make so light of your human experience that I'm going to try and refocus you on manipulating um, God so that you have pleasure. I mean, I'm just, I'm not, I'm going to say that your pain is somehow wrong. It doesn't need to be there. And which is a confusing thing if you're struggling with pain, um, or that somehow you caused it because you didn't have enough faith. And out of that, I'm going to try and reorient you around praying certain prayers and expecting certain blessings. And, and then you're going to really have this prosperous 
life. You see the key word there is prosperity, okay? So here's the pseudo-heresy that I'm seeing. And it's, there's a lot of Christian living books. There's a lot of spiritual books out there that I think go like wildfire through the church. And it's not peddling wealth. It's peddling a type of um, life that is all about victory and adventure and pleasure and success. Um, it's really exciting. And, and, it's, and it's basically if you employ these techniques or if you just get really smart at um, choosing to live a certain way, if you really put down goals, if you, if you really would just frame it, frame it for yourself, you'd begin to realize you could actually um, climb the Himalayas. And wouldn't that be amazing? Like, you know, you could do that or whatever it might be for you. So, so get, uh, get out of your chair. So this is like Richard Simmons' Christianity. Get out, get out of your chair and, and get your butt in gear and realize that everything is just happy, happy, joy, joy. Um, and you can, you can do all this great stuff. And it's, it's, really, um, it's really exciting to read that. And I think sometimes we need to read that. But I think there's something really subtly deceptive in that. Because the success can be all apart from Christ or made without reference to Christ. It's almost like it's a very American um, check these checkboxes, um, bucket list version of success. Does that make sense? Maybe employing some, some Bible verses or some Christian attitudes, um, but victory looks a lot like the American dream. And, and, it's, and it also has that same strange thing that the prosperity gospel has. It, it doesn't really help you understand pain or suffering. It almost acts as if that's kind of this strange thing that's off of the main road. Um, if you get off the road, you might crash the car or, or get into trouble or in the weeds. But hey, um, for the majority of us that, that stay on the road, there's all these wonderful opportunities at, at success or living this really cool Instagram life, right? Well, I think we're all going to end up in the weeds. I think Jesus told us that we had to be prepared for the weeds. And I think we begin to realize the brokenness of life means that sometimes there's such deep pain that, that we aren't in control of. Loved ones that we lose or loved ones that go away or, or loved ones that are making bad decisions habitually. And you have to stand by and watch or whatever it might be. And, and what does this real kind of pseudo prosperity adventure gospel really say to that? which is, it, it doesn't say anything to that. And so I, I think it's this victorious thing is a very young Christian, very young person's kind of um, triumphant thing. And I, I find it to be a bit dangerous. Um, and so I want to kind of set that up as a backdrop because we're going to talk a little bit about pain and the frustration of desire today. And I think that it's needed because I think leaders fall into this. If we define success as, as, as success, um, then leadership really doesn't look like sacrifice or leadership doesn't really look like suffering. 
leadership looks like success, right? And I think there's a lot of confused families that, that, that success looks like focus on the family. And focus on the family, I think, is great. And I think they, they brought the family to the center and, and a lot of principles. But the subtle thing here, if we unhinge that, is that focus on the family makes it look like if we have a perfect family, then that's success. But what happens when it's not perfect? We, we don't have a theology for that anymore. And when we don't have a theology for something, what goes is our relationship with God. God, I don't... I don't know how to understand this pain. Why have you gone silent on me? God, I, I, I committed my life to serving you. How come my influence is shrinking? How come the initiatives that I started are failing? How come I don't understand, God, you told me you would be with me? I, I don't understand why you've gone silent. God, I, I did the, the Dobson thing and I, I focused on my family. In fact, nobody's ever focused more on their family. But 20 years later, my family doesn't look like the, the poster. My kids sometimes disrespect me. They don't even value or understand the energy that I put into it. There's fractures between elements within my family. I... I did what I was supposed to do. And if I did that, weren't you supposed to help me raise up this godly family? I, I, I planted and I, I watered and I nurtured. How come I'm not reaping what I sowed? I don't understand this pain. I don't understand the brokenness in my family. Why have you gone silent on me? And so I think when we start by making things idols, we set ourselves up to have a very challenging and, and confusing relationship with God. And I think we can make an idol of our family. I think we can make an idol of leadership. I think we can make an idol of ministry. I think we can make an idol of adventure these days. Bucket lists can become idolatrous. God might not want me to climb the Himalayas. And the time and the energy and the money that I would spend on it might keep me from doing the very thing God does want me to do. I have to be careful with the things that I put out in front of me, correct? And so what I, I think we begin to find here, and this is ultimately where we're driving to, is that pain can become an idol. Pain can become an idol. I'll, I'll explain a little more. So Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem... Jerusalem, this is Jesus speaking, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Who are the prophets? The people from God to lead God's people back into the right direction. The people sent to you are the ones God is sending as messengers. So you who kill the people of God, the messengers of God that God sends in his love so that you'd come back to him. Those who kill those people, how often I have longed to judge you. If you don't have a Bible, you don't know I'm being facetious. But if you do, you know um, that's not what it says. It says, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. And it's sad. Look, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a fascinating passage. I started thinking about this because of Mother's Day. Um, there's something, when we're celebrating Mother's Day, what we're really celebrating is the, the kind of love that is a nurturing, self-giving love that's typified by mothers. I think it's also typified um, in women, whether you're a mother or not. The way you would look at orphans, the way you would look at foster children, the way you would look at other people's children or nieces and nephews, the way you would look at um, a lot of things in life, that nurturing love doesn't come into existence only when children are present. That's a gift that God has given women. And I think we celebrate that when we celebrate our moms, when we celebrate women, when we celebrate the fact that they love unconditionally and sacrificially, whether you have kids or don't have kids. But it's interesting, Jesus goes even further and says, I'm going to grab a motherhood symbol here to try to help you understand the depths of my self-giving, nurturing love. Because I look at people who are rejecting me. And I don't see judgment. I don't see hate. I see lost people, my people, people that have children that are also my children. And I, I look at that and I long, I desire to somehow scoop it up to where it's under my wing, to where I can protect it, to where I can show my love. See, self-giving love always wants to resolve the tension by making the love known. That's why mothers are the first to write cards, I think. It has to be made known. I, I see my dog, and I love my dog with a nurturing, self-giving love. And uh, charity, that is. Um, I have two dogs, but I love my dog, my dog. Um, but I always have to, t you know what I mean? Like when you, if you've got a dog that you love like that, um, you always have to pat the head or, I mean, it has to resolve itself. You can't just stand at a far and go, oh, I love it so much. It's like, no, I have to make it known. And so Jesus is saying, this is the metaphor that that love would be able to, to scoop up, to bring in, to make manifest, to protect, to have it as it ought to be. But yet, it's not going to be that way. These people have rejected the prophets and the messengers. And so Jesus, with the depths of, of, of self-giving, nurturing love, as if a mother... Jesus says, to that depth, yet that love is frustrated. It can't make itself known. It, it can't bring into life all that it desires. If you can't have kids, I think there's an awareness of that frustrated desire. If you have kids and they have completely gone away, you also know that you cannot fully do that. If you, there's, there's so many different ways in which we come to this and realize the greatest of all the goodness that God has put in us with desire in certain situations will not be able to make itself manifest.
It's interesting because God had the same thing in that he couldn't fully control or dictate the terms of his self-giving love. So God had children. Their names were Adam and Eve. Um, And in the garden uh, were Adam and Eve, and it was good. And they walked in the garden, and God literally was present to them in the garden. And it was as it ought to be. And then one day God comes to the garden, and it's an interesting thing. So if you, if you come up on your kids, if you have kids, um, if you come up on your kids and they break something, it's a, it can be really frustrating. Um, for me, my kids are doing the dishes, and they've been doing them for a while, and about every third time they were doing the dishes, a wine glass would get broken. That sounds wrong. Sounds like I'm drinking one. Um, my kids don't do the dishes a lot. But anyways, there was a period of time, like a month or two, where one after another, wine glasses were getting broken. The only wine glasses we have, the, uh, the majority of them, are when Tamara and I are, are out or about, we like going wine tasting because it, it makes a memory. Like we're not, we don't know what we're doing which is kind of fun too because there's someone that usually tells you what you're supposed to know. Um, but it, it makes a memory. It feels sophisticated. It feels kind of fun. It, it creates that memory. And so I usually always buy like a wine glass when we go wine tasting because that's what, that kind of helps you remember it. So I finally got so frustrated. My daughters, I, I took them aside um, after telling them in, in the future any wine glass broken is $10 they owe me. And they were really upset, and and I finally took them aside because I I realized they didn't understand why I was so upset. And I said, do you know why it really bothers Dad when wine uh, wine glasses get broken? And they said, no, we don't understand. I said, what's one of the the most important things to your dad? What's something that your dad just absolutely loves and kind of orients my life? And they said, making memories. My kids know that. Um, I... I think making memories is one of the coolest things you can do in life, and it knits people together. It, the spirituality of life comes to the front rather than just going through the motions. So, and it can be driving in a car. It can be doing anything. But if you can boil it down to something memorable, there's something sacred in that. Does that make sense? So I asked my kids, what does daddy value? They're like, memories. I said, those aren't wine glasses for me that you guys are breaking. Those are memories. Because I get those when I'm with your mom and, and, and my, my, kid, my two oldest kids, they, they're like, oh, we're breaking dad's memories. That's not good. That's, that's, that, that's worth $10. Um, but it's a, so that's one thing, right? You, you come up on your kids and they're breaking something. What happens when you're God and you come up on your kids and they've broken everything? That's pretty crazy. Like, what's the punishment for you just broke, you just broke it all, all of it? Um, evidently, the punishment is banishment and, and, and enmity. Your kids will kill each other, literally. There, there will always be this tension and this competition, and you will have a degree of estrangement from God 
such that you're not going to really find me unless you seek after me. Like it says in James, the book of James, if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. But in some sense, we have a hide-and-seek God. We have to search for him and look for him. And sometimes it's hard, but we will find him eventually. But it's not like God is, is walking and ever present with us the same way he was in the garden. We've lost some of that. And th- those, those were God's kids. And so when, when we worship the focus on the family idol... And then it doesn't go well. And we're like, man, God, how come you're silent? It's not because God doesn't understand or that God doesn't have something to say. It's that our paradigm is, is broken in such a degree that we can't hear what God has to say. All we want God to say is how something was unjust, how he's going to fix it, and how you should be vindicated because you didn't deserve that as a parent. And God, whose own children went away, and whose son, when, when, when he was here with this nurturing love, wasn't able to fully make it work, that God is saying, I, I do want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about some things that need your attention if, if you could get past this pain. I want to I show you some ways that I'm not going to fix that situation, but that I'm going to redeem the life of your son who has the drug problem now because there are a lot of other people out there on drugs whose lives are a wreck, but they don't have families, they don't have support networks, and they're not going to be able to come out of this the same way he is. And when he comes out of it, he is going to be able to have a ministry to go back to this and to help other people. You don't see it yet, but if you would just trust me, eventually we'll get there together. I do want to talk to you. There are people all around you that you're missing. You're missing the pain in their eyes. You're missing the ability that even in your suffering, you can suffer along with other people or that you can serve other people or encourage other people. You're missing so much because you want a conversation that's the wrong conversation because your pain has become an idol. It is all you see. And your actions and your grief and your sorrow show that it is the only thing that you are giving your full attention to. And now, don't get me wrong, it's not that lament, it's not that grief are somehow bad. It's that ultimately, if we lose sight of God in that, the pain becomes bigger than God to us. And we begin to stop trying to battle through the pain to God, and we just sit here. First Corinthians, you're familiar with it, but I'd love for you to turn there um, just because it's, uh, you know what, I didn't mark it, so maybe we don't turn there. Um, you know what, it's on here. So I'll just, there's, there's an interesting parallel that Paul sets up. Paul sets up, in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, talking about multiple subjects, in the same sentence, he'll use weakness and power. 1 Corinthians, he's talking about our lives, sown in dishonor will be raised in glory, sown in weakness, they'll be raised in power. There's something really counterintuitive and upside down and subversive about how the weak things actually become the strong things in the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 12.9, which is the passage I wanted to bring, you, uh, bring your eyes to. 
2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul is just on an aside. What's he doing in the middle of a sermon uh, to these people in Corinth? Now, these people in Corinth are very much like the people of Bend. Very much like the people of Bend. It's cultural. It's cosmopolitan. People have moved there from all other places. Uh, it's, it's kind of a hot spot. It's well-known. It's well-regarded. And there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things you can do with your time other than serving God. And so there's a real kind of immature faith in Corinth in Bend. Okay? And Paul is, is in the middle of this, and he goes on, um, and then... Uh, he just kind of does this aside. Let me tell you a little piece of my story. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited, um, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to keep me uh, from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was a lot of good stuff in my life, and God was like, no, I'm going to keep you humble. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I mean, you can just picture it, something that's just hitting a button and causes pain. Torment is that thing. It's like this ongoing, incessant um, drip drop of a faucet, but, but painful. And this thing is tormenting Paul. And he goes, three times I pleaded with the Lord. What, is, what does it look like when you pray and the word would be plead? I can tell you how it looks for me. It's usually on my knees and, and I usually will bury my face into something like a pillow or the side of a couch. But it's like, if I'm really pleading, and I never chose that, it's like I just find a dark place to stick my face. And, and it's like my whole focus is coming from here. And you plead with God. And Paul's saying, three times, I pleaded with God, I begged God, I asked God, I beseeched God that this would be taken away from me. But the response from God was this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So as Paul is pleading, he doesn't come out and go, God is silent. He goes, no, God is very, very um, vocal and verbal in saying nothing other than let go of this and come back to me. Let go of this and come back to me. I need your trust in this. He was willing to hear what God had to say in the middle of that pain because his pain was not an idol. He was submitting his pain to God. In other words, his pain became his sacrifice. His pain became his act of worship. This thing that is so intense, that is so huge, that dominates me. This pain it consumes me. I will hold it up to you, God, and, and based on what you're saying to me, I'm willing to lay it on the altar and then let go of it and continue to follow you despite that pain. That's profound. When was the last time you, I, when was the last time you heard in a sermon that your pain is the vehicle for your worship? See, pain can be a barrier to God when it becomes an idol, or pain can be a bridge to God that actually allows us to be more dependent on him than we were without the pain. So listen to what Paul continues to say here. But the Lord says to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, 
so that Christ's power may rest on me. Because that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul obviously doesn't know grammar because those two words cancel each other out. Right? What are you, what are you talking about, Paul, that when you're weak, you're strong? No, when you're weak, you're weak. Right? What Paul was saying is, listen, anything that brings me closer to God, even if it's my weakness, is something that, that helps me become strong because ultimately this is the strength I want, this is the strength I desire, this is the strength that really matters. And so I would have never chosen that as a bridge to intimacy with God, but if that's the bridge God chooses for me, I'll accept it. If that's his will for me, I'll accept it. If that's the cup he wants me to drink from, I'll drink from it. What did Jesus pray when he was in the garden? God, I, I know where this is headed. If you can, please take this cup from me. This cup of suffering, this cup of pain. Um, pain doesn't feel good. I'm scared about it. Suffering isn't, isn't somehow pleasurable. So please, if there's another way to get at your will, take this cup from me. Take this bridge out of my path. But not my will, but yours be done. I'm so afraid that the books we're reading in the Christian world today, when we hit this snag, we don't have a theology for dealing with it. Going and climbing the Himalayas isn't going to bring back my loved one. Going and climbing the Himalayas, if I keep driving at that, isn't going to help me understand that God is speaking to me, will speak to me, will lead me, but it starts with submission and trust, not with the Himalayas. Does that make sense? So Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Jesus says, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So the interesting thing is, right after that, Jesus is sweating in anguish as if drops of blood. He is in anguish pleading with God, head in the corner of the pillow. Five minutes later, he's telling Peter, put your sword away. This is not what I have in mind. Let me heal the ear of this servant here that's wounded. All of a sudden, even though God is not going to take away the cup, Jesus' focus is still where? On other people. See, when pain's an idol, it dominates your thinking. God, I, I live to focus on the family life. I'm not moving, I'm not budging until you talk to me about this, right? Um, God, until you take this will that you've got for me to suffer away from me, I'm gonna keep pleading. And, and we get stuck there. Jesus is like, I'm holding this with an open hand. And oh, by the way, you're in pain. And I care about that. Let me stop my pleading for a moment to serve you. And, and Peter, I get that you're willing to back me up. And not only that, but it would actually kind of be what I want, which, which means I could get away from here. I could somehow get out. I could, I could get away from God's will for my life or the pain. But you know what? At the end of the day, that's, 
that's not from God. It's not gonna be in human strength that I'm gonna escape this suffering that God has called for me. I have to be willing to go through it, not take the easy out. Peter, thank you, but put your sword away. Jesus didn't make an idol of his suffering. Paul didn't make an idol of his suffering. That's why he said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong because the greatest pain can turn into the greatest blessing. The suffering in my life can actually become a bridge to knowing God more deeply. Look at the psalmist. It was the pain that the psalmist feels most often that leads to the song of worship. Pain oftentimes, if submitted to God, begets the greatest of worship and intimacy that we find in our relationship with God. So moving quickly, suffer, if you look at the word, actually means this. It's from the mid-13th century, and it originally means to allow to occur or continue to permit, to tolerate, or fail to prevent or suppress. God suffers our sin. Does he not? God suffers us. It means he allows things to continue. He doesn't intervene at every step, and it grieves him. Jesus sat on that hill, looked at Jerusalem, and he suffered Jerusalem, allowed it to continue. Likewise, I think we have to learn how to suffer God. Do you understand what I mean by that? We have to learn how to suffer God. We can imagine it being differently, but it's not. Jesus looked at these people. He could imagine it being different. I'm like a hen wanting to scoop you up, but it's not gonna be like that. I'm gonna suffer you. We can look at God and go, if you're omnipotent, if you're all powerful, if you really love me, I can imagine it being different. I've heard of other stories where people got healed of cancer. I've heard of other stories. What about my story of redemption? And we have to learn to wait on the Lord, which I think literally means we have to learn to suffer God. To allow it to be, to allow it to exist, to not prevent it from being what it is, to, to, to live with that tension knowing that if God's choosing not to remove this cup from my path, that I have to go through and endure. And so we suffer that God somehow is in control or knows more or ultimately will be able to redeem it even if we can't see it and we suffer God or we suffer God's will or we suffer God's timing. Suffer is not a bad word like we've made it in America. You go to Africa, you go to other places in the world or other time periods, and suffer was a part of life, not seen as something that we're supposed to manage or medicate or control as if we can, can get rid of all suffering. Does that make sense? Is it okay to say that we need to, to learn how to suffer God? If it creates tension, that's good because we're in a Knowing God series and you're supposed to be thinking about it during the week. And there you go. I just created tension. Um, if you think I'm a heretic, I know you'll be thinking about the sermon. And that's okay. Um, Jesus says in Luke 14, 25, um, large, large crowds had gathered around him and were traveling to him. And Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay, not a really good Mother's Day verse. 
you know, unless you hate your mother, you can't love Jesus. Um, but again, Jesus, just like Paul, isn't trying to put these things grammatically. He's trying to talk spiritually. And if mom or dad is an idol, if children are an idol, if anything is bigger than the calling to follow God's will for your life or to go where he would lead, if anything would take precedent over that, it's an idol. It has to be pushed down into a place to where it is now good, mother, father, sons, daughters, is good because it's submitted to God. That we're willing to trust God with that which we love most. If we can't take the things we love most and submit them to God, then we love them more than we love God. So that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus understands love. Jesus understands nurture. I think this is an important topic that we talk about because um, if you're going to lead, and I think I used to be of the school that, that leaders are born, not made, right? And that's just my arrogant way of saying I want my peer group to be smaller rather than larger because then it makes me feel more special. That's really where that came from. Sorry, that was a confession. Um, I'm now subscribed to the, the thought that um, leaders are born and made, that frankly, everybody that has influence is a leader. In your business, if you have influence, you're a leader. If you're a medical person, you hold an incredible amount of influence over people's lives and the things they hold most dear. If you're a teacher, you are stewarding influence. If you're a parent, you have influence. If you're a 20-something and you have more discretionary time on your hand than anyone else in the church, you have the potential to wield a lot of influence. Um, everyone can influence people. So leadership's a big topic these days. And when we talk about leadership as success, as if it's this idol to become successful, and we don't understand that leadership is really cashed out in submission and sacrifice, we don't understand that when Jesus called leaders, he said, listen, it doesn't end well for you. I mean, that's what Jesus said to his leaders. I've called you to be leaders of these people. Oh, by the way, your own story, it doesn't end well for you. You don't get a parade at the end. You don't get the award at the end. It actually doesn't end well for you. And not only that, but my followers are going to suffer because of my name. And you're supposed to lead them. You have to be able to suffer longer than they are able to suffer. How can you lead them if you can't endure it longer or deeper than they can endure it? You have to be the point that they rally to and draw strength from. So Paul's saying, I delight in hardships and persecution, stonings. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at my example. Paul is trying to say, I'm willing to live this out so that you can suffer well because you see me suffering well. And you can offer up as sacrifices your own pain and let that become a bridge to lead you forward, not a roadblock, because you see me doing the same thing, that my leadership was born the minute I said, I'm willing to take this pain and let it go. Paul's leadership was established when he, when he let go of that prayer or that pleading that he had with Jesus and said, I'm going to continue to follow you despite whatever. I'm saying to you today, your leadership, where you're at, all of you, 
Your leadership will be made today the minute you say the thing that would, would truly keep you from being a spiritual leader, that I'm willing to submit it and follow forward and trust rather than to be hung up and demand a conversation around that. What is it for you today? Your greatest pain, your greatest suffering, where you are hung up, your influence in the kingdom and your ability to help disciple other Christians goes up today the minute you're able to put that on the altar and say, this is my sacrifice to you, God. I trust you this much that the thing that I love the most, I'm willing to submit beneath you. C.S. Lewis said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. I have a lot of dreams in my life. I love a lot of things. I'm here to tell you that bucket lists are one way of thinking too much about, about this world. When we look at other people and say, the legacy I want to live is a legacy of love, a legacy of fidelity, a legacy of impacting people for the kingdom of God so that when I get to heaven, there's literally scores of people that say, I learned about Jesus because of the life, the words, the testimony of that person, regardless of whether they ever climb the Himalayas. The person who thinks the most about the present world will become the most ineffective I'm sorry. Uh, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. When we keep our eyes fixed on God, we have great potential. Pain can be an idol, but yet you can trust God with your pain. And so I want to ask you this morning, are we really in obedience able to say with Jesus, your will, Father, be done in my life, not mine. Let me pray for us. Father, um, take weak words, rambling words, I pray, and just distill them down for all of us, for me, for my wife, for my daughter sitting in here, for my friends, for my family that's called Antioch. Distill it down to the one thing you would have us know. Renew in us a trust for you, However weak it is, however small that faith, give us the encouragement, the affirmation to know that if we just start there, you can work with that. You can grow it. You love us with a nurturing, self-giving love that if we would just make the move towards you, if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Give us that assurance. Open up our hands. Let us put our pain in front of you that you might be able to talk to us and we might be able to hear you and begin to walk again. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.